0: those who know me, you know that a daily routine is vital to my health. You know, for my meditations, my prayers, focusing on what I eat, getting my walk and my workout in. But the one thing that's been consistent for five years is I make sure I listen or read two to three minutes of good news a day. Why? There was an amazing study from Harvard from one of the most popular psychology professors, Dr. Talbin Shahar, that said if you listen or watch two to three minutes of Good News a day, you can actually lower your cortisol levels, which reduces inflammation and stress, the things that I needed to do. We are so proud, we are so honored and excited to announce our partnership with the one and only Good News Network. GNN has been number one on Google, Bing, or wherever you search for good news. So do yourself a favor and make GNN.org part of your morning routine to get your daily dose of good news.
1: My view is what causes crime is hopelessness, right? Hopelessness breeds crime. And so it makes perfect sense. If you go into these places and, and create opportunities and create hope, then people are less inclined to go out and commit crimes. And the fact is... We have to stop with this narrative of, you know, we need to invest more in the same systems that don't work. And by that, and by that, I mean police and prisons.
0: Welcome back, everybody. We appreciate your time. As you know, time is so important for us. And we appreciate that you are coming back for another episode of Live in Good Currency with Tony. And Tobias. We're excited to have you, and we thank you. As as you know, we it's all about doing good for yourself and others. So we appreciate the good you do for us by subscribing and promoting and sharing. Each of the guests that we bring into this conversation means something to us, and we hope it means something to you. So we appreciate your feedback, your comments, and, and uh, we look forward to going live with you guys and talking about these episodes. Today, we're really excited to bring in Jason Flum, who I've mm. known for Several years now and been a huge admirer of him. I mean, eclectic resume, which I can't wait to read off just a brief portion, considering his long and incredibly storied past. And we're going to dive into a lot of the fun and interesting things. Without further ado, Jason Flum is the CEO of Lava Records and Lava Music Publishing. Flum previously served as a chairman and CEO of Atlantic Records, Virgin Records, and Capital Music Group and is personally responsible for launching acts such as Kid Rock, Katy Perry, and Lord. The New Yorker described him as one of the most successful record men of the last 20 years. Jason's also a leading philanthropist who has long championed various political and social causes. He has demonstrated his commitment to social justice as a founding board member of the Innocence Project. He is known as a leading expert on clemency and is personally responsible for dozens of clemencies, including 17 that were granted by President Clinton, all of whom were nonviolent drug offenders serving between 15 and 85 years. 2007, Flum founded the Freedom Fund at the Brooks Defenders, and he is the host of the hit podcast, Wrongful Conviction. Well, Jason, welcome to the show. I welcome, appreciate welcome, you, brother. welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for keeping the intro short. You know, it's a terrible. A few times I've been honored and someone just gets up and reads my whole resume. And by the time they're done, everybody left. And I'm like, well, you know, whatever. I don't blame you. It's too long.
0: Oh, man, I left out some good stuff, but we can, we can dive into it. You know, we thank you again. I, you know, we were introduced to each other from mutual friend, Nick Yaris, who was wrongfully convicted of and spent 23 years on death row. And that's kind of how we We met and then, you know, got a chance to work with your daughter and just get to know you and your personality. And, you know, one of the things that we focus on 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 living good currency is really about focusing on doing good for yourself and others daily and aligning your passions with your purpose. And, you know, our philosophy is your purpose in life is to do good for yourself and others daily. If you can, just for the audience, because I think it's very rare to get a CEO of some of the biggest record labels in the world. How did you go or your love for music and lead you to such a, a... you know a passion for running record labels i i want to just dive into a little bit of that before we get into other things
1: well i mean listen i never you know i i always talk about my dad every chance i get and my dad was my hero and my mentor and he gave my brother and i the following advice which i passed down to my kids which is that he said do whatever you want to do, try to be the best at it, but just make the world a better place. Cause there's no other definition of success that really matters. And I was like, all right, well, let me, let me try to do that, dad. So, um, I always wanted to try to fill his very large footsteps. And so, you know, it was around the time I was 18, I realized I was never going to be the best guitar player. I mean, I wanted to be a rock star, but I could see a mile away. It wasn't happening. I also didn't want to go to college. You know, I wanted to smoke pot, grow my hair and play guitar. But then I was very, very lucky to get a job, a trainee um, job at Atlantic Records and putting up posters in record stores with a staple gun, some double sided tape. And they were paying me four dollars an hour. And I was like, this is the greatest job ever. I'm running around putting up Led Zeppelin posters and Sister Sledge and Chic and um, Jesus Christ. It was amazing. The Rolling Stones and ACDC. I was like, this is the best job ever too i was like this is amazing but then once i once i got inside the company i fell in love with the business and i realized while i was never going to be the best at playing the guitar and never going to make full you know see out my rock star dreams maybe i could fulfill them vicariously by helping other people become rock stars and that's when i fell in love with the music business and decided i was going to try to make my way there
0: and it was interesting when you gave your the advice that your father gave you, which is do whatever you want, just make the world a better place. Do be your best and make the world a better place. That's exactly. Do whatever it. you
1: want. Tr- tr- try to be the best at it. Yes. Right. That depressurizes it a little yes, bit. Yes. Try right? to be. Try uh, to so, be. Yeah, yeah, I like that word, try. Try. In there, you know, because. Uh, but then, leave the world uh, a better place. Make the world a better place. That's so, the only and, real and, and to this assess.
0: is what we talk about of be, doing good for yourself and others daily by aligning your passions and your purpose. That's the definition. That's just a succinct, a different version of what your dad said, which is your passions are what you love to do. Try to focus on it, but lead the world a better place, which means you're being of service. Clearly,
1: exactly, and. And and by the way, it took me a long time. I mean, I, you know, those words always stuck in my head. But it took me a long time to realize just how right he really is and was. I mean, he's not he's not around anymore. But those words, um, you know, those are probably the most important words uh, that 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 I've ever heard. You know, directly. Um, and it had the most profound impact on my life, especially coming from him, because he lived by those, he lived by that. And, you know, it was Winston Churchill who said, we make a living by what we get, we make a life by what we give, right? And it's also true, and you guys know this, because you've devoted yourselves to the same you know that i mean we're so we're so aligned we're doing it from different angles but we're so aligned in this you know and it's you know it's easy to think about it in these terms right at the end of the day i've been very very fortunate in the music industry i've discovered a lot of fantastic artists helped to launch their careers but nobody cares it doesn't matter you know nobody cares next week who's discovered this one or who discovered that one. no one cares who discovered the beatles like you know I mean, who discovered the Beatles? Do you guys even know? I don't know, it doesn't even matter, right? The Beatles matter, they'll always matter. But what does matter is that I helped, whatever number it is now, I have no idea what the number is, that so so many people get out of prison, start their lives again, put help put their families back together. That's that That actually matters. And so, look, I still love music, I still love the music industry, I'm still in the music industry, but it's also worth recognizing. That the calling is more important than the work, so to speak.
0: So on that note, do you find yourself when you're talking to these artists, Jason, and you're discovering them, whether anybody knows who discovered them or not, to your point, but do you find yourself instilling or at least trying to instill in, in whether it's in your employees and how you run your company, these the same type of advice your dad gave you or even within these artists as they're chasing their dreams themselves?
1: I mean... Yes and no. They're typically pretty young when, you know, when we first encounter each other. You know, I'm not really, you know, the the relationship's very different than obviously a father-son relationship. That's a business relationship. And I do proselytize this stuff all the time, but I try not to be heavy handed about it. People know what I'm doing. My artists know what I'm doing. If they decide they want to, joined forces. I welcome it. You know, I might ask them if they could do a concert to benefit something or something like that. But other than that, they got to come to it when they come to it. I think a lot of people find their purpose in their early 30s. That's when I found mine. And most of these artists are still a long way off from that. So but, you know, look, a lot of people are doing a lot of good things, a lot of people are doing no good things, you know, I mean, and no judgment here. You know, I, I just uh, I want to do my part and I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you guys, you know, because we're so simpatico. Like I said, and spread the message.
2: First of all, thank you. Uh, for uh, your service and your calling, as you called it. Um, you know, that's amazing uh, within itself. So my question is, you know, how did you come to seeking to help people who have been dehumanized, demonized, traumatized, monetized to the point uh, it is a lucrative business in America to a warehouse often the most uh, challenged and, I guess, least representative of us?
1: Yeah, it's funny. You're the second person that asked me that question today. The first one was Chris Redlitz, who's the founder of the Last Mile Program, which teaches coding inside prisons in California and elsewhere. An incredible man, incredible program, transformative stuff. I love it. Um, but I never get tired of telling this story. I mean, look. It starts from the fact that from the time I was a child, I hated bullying. I hate bullying. I don't. I can't. I can't stand bullies. I always take the side of the underdog. Always take the side of the oppressed, not the oppressor. Um, and it's another thing I told my kids is, is, that if they ever are witness to a bullying incident, I expect them to not, they don't necessarily have to put themselves in harm way, but they always must take the side of the oppressed, not the oppressor. And so the most extreme form of bullying, the way I look at it is when the government, you know, picks somebody off the street and then just railroads them. And, you know, they have no hope in hell, especially if you're poor or even more so if you're a poor person of color you know it's it's not even, i mean there's no, there's no there's no fair fight there you know so the first case that i encountered and what started me on this mission and it's interesting because this is where my two worlds collide right so this was 1993, and I read the story in the newspaper of a kid named Stephen Lennon who was serving 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge in a maximum security prison in New York State. And I know people that are listening are saying, no, 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 you mixed that up. There was some other circumstance. Mm-hmm. He must have shot somebody. No, no or he didn't. Be- no, nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge. It wasn't a small amount of cocaine, don't get me wrong. It was 4.2 ounces. But nonetheless, it was 1st offense, nonviolent possession. They didn't catch him selling it. So he was doing 15 years to life in a maximum security prison in New York State. And he had gotten his mother, who was not a person of influence, just a woman from a little town, upstate New York, Shirley. She had gotten people of influence behind the cause to get clemency from Governor Mario Cuomo. Um, and in spite of the fact that some high-profile people, including Geraldine Ferraro, had gotten involved, the governor turned it down. So that's why it was in the newspaper. And I read this, and I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I didn't know anything about these mandatory sentencing laws. I knew that I had had a drug problem as a kid. You know, I mean, I had gone to rehab when I was 26 for cocaine. And I recognized that it was because of the color of my skin and my zip code that I interacted with the rehab business instead of the prison business. So I was like... Okay, so there, you know, I'm not a religious person, but there but for the grace of God go I. So I was like, I got to do something about this. And I didn't know how, you know, I, I didn't know anything, but I did know I had to do something. So I only knew one criminal defense lawyer back then. Now I know hundreds, but I knew one guy because he represented two of the artists I had discovered, Stone Temple Pilots and Skid Row, and they were getting arrested like twice a week, you know. So I had him on speed dial. So I called Bob. I said, look, is there anything you could do? He said, it's hopeless. This is Rockefeller drug laws. There's thousands of cases like this. I said, look, you got to help if you can. By now, I had spoken to the kid's mother on the phone, and uh, she was in the phone book. And so he took the case pro bono uh, as a favor to me. And six months later, we ended up in a courtroom in Malone, New York. And I sat there holding Mrs. Lennon's hand when the, her son was brought in in shackles. Like he Come was, on, you know, bro, know, Charles Manson, right? I'm like, this is a nonviolent first offender, a little, little skinny guy with glasses. I'm like, well, what are they doing here, you know? <laughs> anyway, the arguments go back and forth. I don't know what's going on. I'm a college dropout. I don't even know what they're talking about. But one way or another, the judge bangs. The, I still had a mullet back then. The judge bangs the gavel down and sends the kids home. And I got to witness that, and I said, oh, my God, I I guess I have a superpower. I I better use it, you
2: know? So so that's what got me started. uh, Brother, 1993, I was convicted uh, on mandatory sentencing laws. I wasn't an adult, and they gave me life without the possibility of parole, uh, regardless to people from five different states coming to speak for my behalf, uh, not being in the house during the case in which they knew. Uh, And the DA even said to my mother, the higher-ups, and I won't say the higher-up's name, uh, that they said if Tobias would not snitch or tell upon his co-defendants, he was going to die along with them. 1993, not even an adult yet. Matter of fact, they called us juvenile offenders. And so I was sentenced to death. So when you say mandatory sin, it's called the felony murder rule. And it goes along with a, a strip of psychology, they say we give them the felony murder rule because they're sociopaths, having no capacity to show empathy or care. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So, uh with that being uh, said, and I say that for context, because that's the reason why I went to prove them wrong. I said, okay, you say I am anti-so at that time in my life I didn't even know what antisocial was. I didn't know what a social path was, I didn't know what the lack of empathy or care. And said you don't have the capacity. So that justifies how they treat you in there because you're not a person. And so when you said a person who comes from selling drugs, no justification in selling drugs, but we know the conditions that bring about those kind of realities in people's lives, but no justification to our listeners. No, people shouldn't be selling, using drugs. But the point is to send him to a maximum security prison, you can possibly damage him for the rest of his life. And uh, this is the one thing I know. So knowing that the good work and service and the calling that you've taken on, it resonates with me very personally. And to know that you have been fighting uh, since that time, the, you know, in, the, the innocent projects here deny me three times. And uh, our case, because I came out of Compton at the time and it was worse. Uh, one of the uh, matter of fact, the federal government took over the police department due to corruption and they said Tobias is too political to take your case, and we don't have enough money to prove what you would need for us to prove. So that's why it took three decades uh, for me to get out. And the proof that they was wrong because I'm not antisocial. They call me a love bug, you know. They call me a magnet of joy, you know. We've started a company talking about spreading good. They said they used the words, dear brother Jason, encourageable. I didn't even know what the word means. They said. He cannot be cured. There is no human quality in this individual. And so if they have done that to me, uh, in which, uh, due to my father, he said, son, they might have your body, but only you can give them your spirit and your mind. You have the capacity to leave your physical circumstances and travel into the beyond. And in that traveling and me retrie- uh, retrieving You know, principles of the spirit and our ancestries and and music plays a great part inside of the prison setting. Dance and and singing, although uh, it it kills the administration to see us rejoicing because we're there to be punished. So even in your thinking it's not of consequence, you said I couldn't be a star, but I'm going to make stars. Man, I think that's more powerful because if you became a star, who knows? But since you did not... That created the, the names of the people I'm looking at here. These are no lightweight. These are the messengers of our time. Millions of people are affected, and I know this behind the wall because we escaping our music. And so to take that another level, said so brother, I'm not going to be pushing on them. They see the kind of work that I do, and that's very important. That's how California became more open and minded because people like yourself bringing artists behind the wall causing those kinds of concerts, like you said. And so, brother, this is like, uh, you know, the evolution of the 60s in 2022. 20, uh, uh, thank you, and I appreciate you.
1: It's interesting. It's ironic and serendipitous that while you were speaking, um, I have my phone on the charger here, but I saw it light up, and I got a call from a guy who's in prison in uh, Washington State named Matt Leon, who's serving, he's in almost almost in 25 years, on felony murder. Um, come on, come he was come not on. the guy who did it. He, he was he was there doing a pot deal and his friend killed somebody. Come on. And at the same time, I got a text from Kiera Newsom, who's from Compton, who's like uh, she's become like family to me. She did 19 years and 10 months, um, totally innocent, framed in the most egregious ways by the LAPD. And she was um uh, just an extraordinary straight-A student, uh, wanted to go into the Air Force, uh, had a, yeah, had never joined a gang or anything like that. And um, when she was on my podcast, Wrongful Conviction, she she appeared on the show not too long after she got out. She got out about a year and a, and a half ago. Her little baby's about to turn one. Um, and she is, she's, she knocked, I mean, she just knocked my socks off. I was like, this is this woman is one of the most extraordinary. And I I meet extraordinary people all the time. I mean, every one of the exonerees has an extraordinary, you know, spirit and and an extraordinary gift to share, having been to hell and back for something they had nothing to do with. But the fact is, um, as do you, and you're doing it right now. But there's something about Chiara that's just extra, extra special. And, um, you know, and so, yeah, it's just interesting that she had, I don't know what she texted me. She was just happened to text me now. We're going to do a speech together in a couple of weeks. It's probably about that. But, uh, but yeah, it's just funny when you mentioned Compton and you mentioned felony murder, and it all came together as my phone lit up.
0: We just had, we had someone on our podcast earlier, Peter Samuelson, prolific producer and philanthropist, who uh, he said about these souls, that there's there's a couple of levels of souls. And at some point, there's this... Top level is when you meet, you instantly know you're connected and you instantly want to say, I love you. How do I serve you? And then things start connecting. So Jason, that's how I felt day one when I met you. There's just something, there's no the 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 agenda is how do we help serve whatever we're trying to do? And so when you're when Tobias is talking and then she texts you, yeah,
2: it makes sense now. Yeah, no, it no, makes no, no, sense no, 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 murder rule it makes one sense. person text. Then Compton, California, another person Mm -hmm. texts. The prison that we was in, Calipatria, you know, this is Calipatria State Prison, 130 degrees, the lowest place on earth, National Geographic, will tell you that. Jesus. Brother, you know, we go to a lot of funerals lately. And I asked the mathematician, I said, how many tons of dirt is placed upon the casket or the body? He says three or four tons. I said, brother, that's how it feels with a life without sentence sitting in those caves, of those cement steel slabs. And so to have this kind of platform to give voice to those of us who have come behind the wall, uh, whether we are there for crimes, real or imagined, that I can be a voice, I can be an avatar, that there is good in us. And some of us uh, did what your father said, and he said pretty much make an impact. And I wasn't even my best self. And I would tell Tony all the time, I said, Tony, I was in prison 30, how can I even, I was just so incomplete in so many different ways. But they didn't need a, per- a perfect person in prison. They just needed somebody who had more than they had. And I had love, I had family, I had community. I had knowledge of myself and my creator and my ancestors. So that's what I gave. And so that was enough to start a movement in California that led to changing the laws on mandatory sentencing, on uh, youth getting life without the possibility of parole sentences, uh, shutting down the juvenile corrections, uh, women, two women's prisons. Now we're having reform to bring those women back out because most women are there for killing or harming or harming the person that was harming them, you know, so... This kind of work all started with myself 1993. I was arrested in 1991. Well, I turned myself in in 1991. But 1993 is when I was convicted. So when you say those dates, you know, these are dates which resonate with me as well.
1: Yeah, here's the, uh, I just pulled up on my phone the original story that I read that got wow. me started. And I wanted to say, you know, it's interesting because we could talk all day, literally all day about all this stuff. I mean, it's incredible to be talking to you, especially you, device, Um, you know, the you know the work that I've been doing, you know, is all centered. I mean, I've worked on bail reform. I've been on the board of Families Against Mandatory Minimum since 1994. You know, um, I'm the Innocence Founding Board member, not the founder of the Innocence Project by any means. The founders are Peter Newfeld and Barry Sheck. um, but I'm the original board member there, and I've worked at the um, you know Legal Action Center and Drug Policy Alliance, decriminalizing working to decriminalize all drugs and et cetera, et cetera. But my whole, you know, my, my, my work is centered around ending mass incarceration, you know, because it's the worst failed social policy disaster since slavery, except when you consider, as Michelle Alexander proved, that it actually is slavery. So it hasn't, there's no distinction there. It's just a continuation. And people don't realize that slavery is only illegal in one state. Colorado made it illegal a year ago in a referendum. 49 states, it's still legal to have slaves as long as they're incarcerated. So, you know, the, but the, the issue, you know, it's interesting to me, well, let me just throw one statistic at the audience here, because I think this is one of the most shocking statistics. We don't have time for a, a whole college lecture, but the fact is we have so many people in prison in america right we have more people in prison than russia and china combined we have more people in cages right now that haven't been convicted of a crime than everybody in prison in india right (sighs) india's got almost four times as many people as we do but the worst and most shocking statistic well there's two that i'm going to say one is that we have 33 percent of the world's female prison population right we are We are 4.4% of the world's population, but we have one out of every three women in prison in the freaking world is in prison in America. A lot of them are in prison for crimes that never even happened. And then I'm talking about shaken baby syndrome and things like that. Right. But here's the worst of all the worst, the worst of all the worst. And this doesn't get enough attention is that we lock black people up in America, and you know from personal experience, at six times the rate of South Africa during apartheid for man. Right? My and man. so, like, what, what? I mean, like, South Africa, it was a crime to be black in South Africa, right? <laughs> I, I mean, you. what in the world is going on here? So, but I, what I did want to say also is that, you know, with this podcast, one of the things that's given me so much joy doing it and now we've been doing it for five years over uh two almost 250 episodes about 30 million downloads and it's inspired legislation in three different states um but it's also had an impact on quite a few cases and even yesterday i mean this this feeling never gets old right let me let me read you a text I got yesterday from an attorney for a guy named Vincent Simmons, who was on our podcast. Now, Vincent has been in prison in Louisiana for 44, going on 45 years, okay? For a crime that never, happened, okay? It never happened. And the text I got yesterday from his attorney, he was on, like I said, he was on our show. Um, I've been advocating for his release uh, down in Louisiana. He sent me the, the interview he did on CBS. He said, "Thought you may want to watch that. You have been a major part in getting us some traction, bro." <laughs> with 5 exclamation points. God willing Vincent gets out soon. Got a hearing on the 14th. Maybe you and Vincent get an early present. Um wow, bro. so Yeah, I mean, look, look this guy I mean, I, I don't I don't even want to say this. It's so disgusting, but the, the two twin sisters who accused him falsely of kidnapping and raping them and some to kill a mockingbird kind of nonsense. They went on TV yesterday and the guy from CBS said to them, well, um, when you initially reported this incident, which was weeks after it allegedly happened, you said that you couldn't identify the perpetrator because quote unquote, and this is a quote from you. I just want to, this is him talking to the sisters. He said, you did say that all in Words look the same. Wow. So you can't make an identification. Did you say those words? And she says, Yeah, I said that. And he says, But you identified Mr. Simmons. She goes, Yeah, because he did it. Mm. And then later on in the podcast, in, in the in the CBS interview, you could pull this up. Later on, she admits that it was her cousin. Who was older, and that he had started? You know, this is what it is, right? Like she, she didn't want to blame it on him, so pick a black guy, right, and just get a random. You know, that narrative is old old as time, but it still exists. And imagine Louisiana in the 70s, right? So she didn't admit that he was responsible for this crime, but she admitted that she had been. That he had been having his way with her from the time she was nine or ten, he was four years older. And this was a this was breaking news because now everything else she says is under under scrutiny. And I, and I don't need to tell you, I mean, the cousin, his brother was the arresting officer. You know what I mean? And and by the way, when Vincent wouldn't admit in the police station that to the crime he didn't commit and didn't know anything about, never met these people in his life, you know what they did? They shot him in the police station. In the chest, they had to wait for him to heal up to go to trial. Yeah, you can't make this stuff up. You got to hear it. Listen, I'm going to send you guys the episode that we did with Vincent Simmons. But I'm so happy because I spoke to the, I spoke to the chief counsel in the governor's office about this case some time ago. She actually turns out was a fan of the podcast, which was great. Yeah, it was the funniest thing. I know I'm talking too much, but it was the funniest thing because when I was first on the phone with her, I was talking to her about this case and the case of another guy named Robert Spencer, who the governor did actually uh, grant clemency to. And um, he's home and doing great. But um, there were two cases I was talking to her about. And and you can't make this up, I'd never spoken to her before. And she says to me, you know, this reminds me of um, a podcast I've been listening to lately. There's this podcast where they talk about these cases. And I'm like, Leslie, I, 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 wasn't <laughs> her name, I was like, listen, listen, and she's like, no, no, no. You got to hear me out. Like this podcast, they really go into the, these cases It's called wrongful conviction. And they did. And I'm like, I'm trying to get a worded." And I finally go, that's me. Yeah, and she's on. like, Oh my God, you're right. That's you. I was like, come yeah. On, so it was on, a funny moment, on. but, it, but the results have been, you know, it, it's been really good. I mean, it's, it's had an impact on a lot Lamont McIntyre case on the Ronnie long case and on other cases. And most importantly, we the, the, the purpose of this podcast, from the time I started it, was to try to shine a light. First of all, tell these incredible stories, make a permanent record, so that law students and everybody else can study these for generations to come. But furthermore, to educate the public. Come on. So the next time a Tobias comes in front of a jury, they don't just sit there and go, "Well, I guess so." They're saying it must be so, so it must be so. And you got some lawyer who doesn't even barely know your name, might not even know their own name. And so, yeah, so the the best cases are going to be the ones that we never hear about, where somebody in a jury room has listened to the show and goes in there and says, no, I'm not. I'm not falling for this crap. I'm not going to vote oh, to convict Jason. just because somebody says so. So that's that's the. So Jason, look, Jason, it Jason, gives it. me a lot of joy. It now I'm up, now it
2: look, I'm, I'm gonna ask you this on the next step, okay? After 44 years, 44 years, I'm 52 years old. 44 years, Louisiana, shot in the chest for something you didn't do a cue or your Angola going through. Come on, we talking about Angola now? What What do you feel about what I say? Like reentry? You know what kind are you a part of any organizations or are you started and founded in? Uh, how are people getting out and what are they getting out to after this kind of incarceration, which is of it, the most people? And our governor here, who commuted my sisters, I was on the uh, uh, I was on the commutation, and he wrote uh, four thousand people in the year I was commuted. To have casual contacts. That's what I mean. In a medical setting, I was involved in a therapeutic kind of situation with 4,000 incarcerated people. Point being, in them telling me that they have received more trauma, hurt, and pain during their stint in incarceration than they did in their childhood. So I said, now how, since there is a mass exodus uh, coming, you're talking about 100,000 people in California in the next four uh, uh, years, what do you believe we should do now as a society in getting this mass exodus of people who have been taken out of the world? I'm talking about technology. So I'm talking about everything that you can name. We've been in a whole another place. How do you see this? Uh, you know, what are you doing? Uh, what can we do uh, concerning the reentry process?
1: You know, that's. Um something I've been very focused on, particularly for the last about 12, 13 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I helped to found something called the Life After Exoneration Program at the Innocence Project. Um, and I helped to start what's called the Innocence Network Conference, which is something that's, that joins together exonerees uh, for a weekend of, of healing and togetherness and counseling and and you know all kinds of different social workers and lawyers and Innocence Network people are there. But there's an organization, I've worked closely with called the First 72 Plus that's devoted to helping people after they come home. It was founded on the premise that the first 72 hours out have a lot to do with whether or not you're going to be able to make survive on the outside. And so it's now a program that has been wildly effective in helping a large number, not nearly a large enough number, but a large number of of exonerated people and people who are coming out who may have committed the crime, but, you know, have done their time and deserve a chance. I mean, I wish we had more people donating and more, you know, more resources so we could spread it around even better. But it's a huge focus for me because you point out something that I've like a broken record on this, right? Which is that when we release people innocent Mm. or guilty, almost everybody that's in prison comes home, we build walls to prevent them from getting anywhere instead of building ramps. Which is exactly what we should do.
2: Ramps. Not and, bridges, ramps. You
1: know, we put we put ramps, bridges, you know, anything. I mean, we should be providing entry ways for them to get back to their families, to their schools, to their whatever they got, their churches. I don't care. Like I said, I'm not a religious guy, but whatever that thing is, and get back on the and the workforce so they can, you know, be a part of society. Instead, we put these extremely restrictive thousands of mm. different rules of probation and parole, which are designed to make sure you go back to prison. Right. And I watched an incredible TED talk recently that I will share that information with you as please, well. Please. Which really shined a, a, a very, very powerful light on the challenges of somebody who comes home with these, you know, these incredible hurdles of having to check in with your parole officer every day at three or whatever it is. I mean, I every day, but, and do all these other things before even three o'clock in the afternoon, as well as getting a job, having a place to live, not having a place to live is a parole violation. In yeah. Cases, right. But if you don't have a place to live, you can't get a place to live. So this, this TED talk was called How Radical Hospitality Can Change the Lives of the Formerly Incarcerated. It's by a man named Reuben Jonathan Miller. You watch this, you will really see. I mean, first of all, there's a lot of hope in it, especially courtesy of a man named Ronald Simpson Bay. But uh, the the you know, I, I wish every person in the prison industrial complex uh, and and the entire you know, all the courts and everybody else could watch this thing and then explain to me why any of it makes sense because it doesn't, you know, it's like, and, and, and by the way, and there's no other country that does it this way, only in America, you know, I mean, how about, you know, (laughs) how about we incarcerate our own people at 14 times the rate per capita of Japan, right? And then people say, oh, because we have higher crime. No, we don't. don't. And by the way, crime rates go up and down all over the world in the same similar type of way. It doesn't, there's no benefit whatsoever to public safety to locking people up. It doesn't help. It doesn't work. In fact, it makes things worse. And that's even true on the most basic level. Even if someone goes to jail for a few days, as opposed to being released on bail, they're 40% more likely to commit a felony in the next year than they are if they were released on bail. That's a fact that was the, there's a study, you could look it up at the university of Pennsylvania and the Quattron center that proved that. So, you know, for people that, you know, the problem is right now we got all these people, otherwise people who are otherwise good people who are going crazy because they saw one video or they heard about one person that got robbed in Beverly Hills, or they saw one video of a store being, you know, run over by you know, a bunch of different thieves or whatever. And it's like, there is no crazy rise in crime. There is no crime wave. Yes. There are some crimes that happen. There's always going to be some crimes that happen. You know, somebody got pushed in front of the subway in New York, you know, a yeah. couple of weeks ago, you know what? There were two police officers on the platform when that happened. You know what I mean? You can't prevent crime. There's no such thing as a society that doesn't have crime. But the way that we do it is the single worst and least effective way, and it virtually guarantees the outcomes are going to remain the same or get worse. If you want to prevent crime, you know what you do? You fix the am I allowed to curse? You can you fix the fucking streetlights in the ghetto. That just fixing the street lights reduces crime by 30%. That's all you have to do. And by the way, you know what else you do? You pick up the garbage off off the street, and you build some green space. Speak green space, that's right, that's right. And you put some childhood education, you put some mental health facilities, and the next thing you know, the kids, the next generation of kids are not going to have these same problems, right. right? And the next generation of crime is going to be much, much lower because these, you Those know, simple things. What, my view is what causes crime is hopelessness, yes. right? Yeah. Hopelessness breeds crime. And so it makes perfect sense. If you go into these places and and create opportunities and create hope, then people are less inclined To, you know, become addicted to drugs because that's the only thing they can do that makes them feel, you know, like they are, you know, escaping from this reality or whatever. And they're less inclined to develop mental health problems and they're less inclined to go out and commit crimes. And those crimes, yes, once in a while, those crimes might be in the neighborhood of somebody who looks and walks, you know, somebody who lives in, in, in uh, in a wealthy zip code. And you know what? you know that's I, I and i don't i'm not you know look i i wish that didn't happen and i wish it didn't happen anywhere but the fact is we have to stop with this narrative of you know narrative. we need to invest more in the same systems that don't work and by that and by that i mean police and prison.
0: jason you are a uh, you are a leader brother i know you're very humble in how you speak about what you've done but it's it's imperative that you continue to put your microphone where your mouth is and that which is great that you're having you you can at least see in the 5 years you've been doing it the the, the powerful impact you know media spreads it could be positive or, or negative i mean good news network was created in 1997 by Jerry who, who taught herself HTML coding because she was so sick that DC murder was at an all-time low, but it was at an all-time high in the news. And so she was like, there's so much more good than there is bad. There's so much more good news. Right. There's so many more good people. People are like, no, if it bleeds, what is it? It bleeds, it, it reads, leads, whatever, you know, it, leads, leads. it bleeds, so it bleeds. So she just said no and screw it. And so she formed her own uh, GNN, which, you know, I'm lucky enough to be a part of. We are lucky enough to be a part of now. But, you know, since 1997, it's good news is 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 for, like, typically bad news gone good, and to show people the positive, it, it gives people hope. Um, you know, then you know this, and that's really where um, I think our, our 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 paths keep crossing, and hopefully can cross even more, so we can continue to help rise the the positive. I mean, people need to understand that there's, to your point, there's hope. Not just how do we create hope for all those uh, the issues, like the street lights and just almost the simplicity of what you're describing. about. Brother, please hold on. Please yeah, yeah. allow
2: me to name them. Okay. I asked him a question. He gave me an answer, and I wrote it down, although we're already on it. Provide light. Yes. Mm. That can be a whole nother podcast. Two, pick up the trash. We ain't talking about just the trash. I'm talking about the trash food they sell and all that. That's another conversation. Then he said education of the generation that is to come, proper education, whatever that can mean, whole nother part, and lastly, green solutions. The amount of money that we raise a year to keep the lights on, to pick up the trash, to give a proper ethnoculturally sensitive, responsive based education to the babies that need it, and think green. Let's put some green back in these communities. I wouldn't think that would be a lot to ask. Them. No, it no, actually, <laughs> it's it, it, like it. It. as a matter of fact, uh, it's important
0: that Jason knows which you know. So we, Good Currency Studios, is a public benefit corporation, and our public benefit is reentry. But our focus that we're focusing some of those profits on, and in, in our attention is, and we talk about not just reentry from prison, but reentry from foster care, homelessness, you know, depression, PTSD. There's a lot of us once once the 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 person who's never been incarcerated or doesn't have a relationship with anybody who's been incarcerated. Realize that, they, as as Tobias says, in the three and a half years he's been out, he sees more people who have been incarcerated. Imprisoned. Imprisoned.
2: Than are incarcerated. Than they are
0: incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Think about that. He sees more people who have been imprisoned than are incarcerated. Meaning there's so many of us who are quote unquote free that are trapped in our own depression, our own cyclical cycle. Lies, cycles, falsehoods, exactly.
2: implicit biases, explicit biases, whatever the case might be, Then there was the people who I've seen inside of physical cells. That's right.
0: And I think once we, and that's one of our hopes with this podcast, as we start interviewing people, is to Really realize that we all have our own imprisonment. We are all connected. This benefits you because you may be imprisoned in your own mind or your mm. own body or your own whatever it is comforts, your comforts, your childhood dramas or whatever it may be. Tobias, why don't you uh, share with Jason what? Um, so what we have a sister foundation called the Huma House. It'd be I think it'd be cool to have Jason hear about just quickly some of the okay. initiatives. Uh,
2: just real quickly, uh, Huma is a mythical bird. That is a maternal or mother bird, and she provides care to those in need. So it's called the Huma House, and we provide Huma care. It's one thing I learned in prison very quickly that at the time California said, okay, stop beating and killing prisoners, neglect went up. So no toilet paper, no water, no human contact, no sunlight, neglect. So the opposite of neglect is care. So we are seeking to give people what we call whole person care. And as you said, turning on the lights is sometimes just giving people enlightenment, the kind of enlightenment they didn't have when they lived in whole lives of darkness. So we do that through various means. Some is through creative means, through the arts. Some is through green solutions. So, you know, I'm a farmer. uh, I've done it in the institution. I was raised partially in South Carolina, so I have a relationship with the earth, and I know the importance of getting people back into the earth as a community and eating foods that we are growing ourselves. So that's an aspect. We have one sister who's very deep like you into uh, the, uh, the legislation and fighting to get people uh, out of prisons from you know ridiculous sentences, too much uh, sentences. So there's a whole system that we are creating now. We're seeking to do the housing because we're figuring out, as you said, a lot of our brothers and sisters who are getting out, especially in California, are falling victim to homelessness and all the dis-ease and dis-ease of that. And so now the last component, which is often the most difficult, is finding spaces outside of the inner city in which people can find oasis. But the Huma House is a nonprofit that uh, specializes in bringing the proper kind of care that I understand that we need when we get out. And uh, we have us, which are previously incarcerated people, uh, me and a sister named Jenea, uh, who are at the helm? She went in at 16. She's 36 years old. Two women's prisons in California. She's been to both, and she's able to go in the both. And so, when I ask you these things about reentry, that's where uh, the focus is because I'm a reentry person. So uh, I appreciate. It. And the four things that you said is of absolute importance. You know, we got to turn on the lights. We got to pick up the trash, and we got to educate our young folks who's out in these streets and green solutions. Man, we got to return our communities back into beautiful spaces. And uh, so, yeah, that's exactly what Human Care uh, offers to reentry people.
1: Yeah, and I want to just throw a couple more things out there. I know we're about out of time, but it's incredible how, how we've got it really completely backwards in terms of our priorities, right? The New York City Comptroller just released a report that showed that it costs to keep somebody in Rikers Island for a year. Rikers Island the most dangerous prison in New York State in by far one of the most dangerous prisons in, in America or the world. And it's a, it's not even a prison, it's a jail. 80% of the people there haven't been convicted of anything. But it costs $565,000 a year to keep somebody in Rikers Island. Now imagine what we could do with that money million. if we actually, yeah, you could, you could put them in a suite at the Four Seasons. And
2: you can hire me and I make sure, brother, they will never commit or think about it go half a million, don't even trip.
1: <laughs> you follow them around, exactly. Oh, Oh, don't to eat sure and the other thing i just wanted to share is that you know picking up on what you said tobias what both of you guys have been saying you know tomorrow morning seven o'clock i'm heading up to visit an innocent man named paul cortez who's in prison in the place called in a prison called green haven in new york he's been in for almost 17 years he's 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 a I mean, he. this is a guy who never did anything. He never crossed the street against the light in his life. He was a kid from the Bronx, Puerto Rican kid, who became the captain of the sports teams, academic, excelled academically, and was making his way. Got a college, first family. He was getting his family to get a college degree. to think he went to Brown. Got wrongfully convicted of a murder. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, his lawyers didn't even show up for the first three days of trial. They just didn't show up. He was just on his own. And so and the judge allowed this for some reason but it goes downhill fast from there anyway but the point being he's been on my he was on a very recent episode of our podcast please listen to it wrongful oh, conviction paul cortez is the guy's name it's a, it's an incredible episode he's an incredible man i'm going up to see him tomorrow and one thing every time i visit a prison and i encourage people who haven't visited a prison to visit a prison. Uh, There are programs where you can write letters to people in prison. You can Google, I forgot the names of them, Tobias, you probably Mm -hmm, know. mm -hmm. There are programs, uh, the Douglas Project is a project I'm on the board of, which is a recent startup out of Georgetown University that is going to be creating pathways to connect people who want to visit prisons, people in groups, school groups, church groups, et cetera, bring them inside the walls, create proximity, as Brian Stevenson says, the great Brian Stevenson. And one thing, every time it seems like I go into one of these facilities, some maximum security prison. I come out with this feeling like I experienced more humanity inside those walls than I do on a daily basis out here wow, walking around the streets. And it goes back to what you were saying about people being free but not free, I guess, is what you're, you know, it's exactly. kind of picking up on that. So, yeah, I mean, look, the, the amount of, of lost potential behind those walls, and it, it's just... It's freaking tragic, and it's always hard to leave knowing that I have to leave the person or people that I'm visiting inside. But you know, we're, we're gonna get Paul out. I mean, I know we're gonna get
0: Paul That's out. Right. I love it, Jason. I can't wait to meet you in person. It's been, you know, years that we've known each other and talked. And yeah, you know, exactly. God bless you for the work you do, man. And, and to follow what Jason Flum is doing and actually check out three of his other podcasts, go to lavaforgood.com. That's lavaforgood.com. You can not only listen to Wrongful Conviction, but his other three podcasts, Righteous Convictions, Junk Science, and False Confessions. Jason, true honor. We appreciate everything you've done. We can't wait to get you out here in person. And let's get to work. Don't forget to check out new episodes every Monday. We're super excited about this. What's up?
1: I'm Jason Flom. I'm
0: Tony Samadani. I'm Tobias Tubbs. And we are Living, living Good, good Currency. <laughs>